Good morning again, church. Good to see you all here. We're excited to continue our series in the book of Revelation this morning. You know, when I was in high school, I played athletics. I was uh, involved in several sports. And uh, I recall a certain coach of mine having an expression that he loved to use uh, in practices. And it went something like this, no pain, no gain. Maybe that explains the day after Thanksgiving um, when I regretted that extra piece of pumpkin pie when he had us practicing at 7 a.m. and running until one of us lost our previous day's lunch. This coach was all about trying to make sure that we understood a principle in life, and that was that we had to put in the work if we wanted to experience the glory. Now, we never went to the top of the mountain. We never won the state championship while I was around. But a few years later, Del Campo High School, led by a kid named Matt Barnes, actually went to the top of the mountain. And they ended up competing at the state level. And it was under that same coach that I, that I played for. Unfortunately, he didn't have the talent when I was around to get as far, but he certainly understood what it meant to have the work ethic, to have what it takes in order to achieve victory. This morning, we're going to be diving in our text, and, and I've entitled this morning's message, No Pain, No Gain. Now, anybody who's ever worked out knows that in order to build muscle, what needs to happen first? It first needs to be broken down, right? You actually tear the fibers in your muscle, and then the repairing of that over the next few days is what builds in strength or, or more strength than what you had at first. Now, is that experience painful? Yes, it is, right? It, it, you're sore the next day. I just, like yesterday I spent the morning with my, two of my boys splitting firewood. For about four hours we were there hoisting these big round logs into a splitter and then being able to stack those into the truck, haul those over to our house and then stack it at our house because we have a wood-burning stove at our house thanks to Shell who brings us lots of firewood that isn't cut up except for it is cut into rounds, but I had to bring those over and get those split. But that keeps us warm during the winter. It keeps our PG&E bill. How many love PG&E right now? Yeah, yeah. Not if you've seen your bill, right? We don't love them. But we try and keep that bill under control. And so I woke up this morning, and I could barely get out of bed. Why? Because I had just done something that was very painful, right? Something that had broken down my muscles, but God knows that pain can be used for our good. I want to I um, just give you some context. We're, we're diving through the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in the next several weeks, and, and today we come upon the second church in a series of seven churches that are addressed by the Apostle John here in this letter. And the, the first church was spoke about last week, it's the church of Ephesus, and we call that the loveless church. They had lost their first love. They had fallen out of love. You know, we've all been on a honeymoon period, right? Everything's rosy. And then reality smacks you upside the face, right? 
And we have a danger of, of not loving like we did at first. And that's what this church of Ephesus was being rebuked about, was being talked to about by God through his apostles writing to the church of Ephesus. Today we're going to look at Smyrna. Smyrna is known as the persecuted church. Then there's a church called Pergamum, the compromising church. Then Thyatira, the corrupt church. Sardis was known as a dead church. Philadelphia is a faithful church. And finally, Laodicea is a lukewarm church. Now, some scholars see this as the period of time of the church age, from the day that Jesus established the church on the day of Pentecost, 40 days after he had risen from the dead, his Holy Spirit descended in the upper room, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. The church began, and 3,000 people were added to their numbers that day. That was the birthday of the church. Some see these seven letters as, as kind of recounting over the period of the church age what the church, what would happen in the church. You remember it, and when you read through Acts, I mean, the church was on fire. They were in love with Jesus. They had seen the risen Jesus personally. They were excited. They were thinking Jesus is going to come back for us any minute. But time went by. It wasn't God's plan, obviously, to return for his church within that first century, was it? We're now two millennia after Jesus' resurrection, and we still await the promise that he will return for his church. So it's been a long journey, and so Ephesus had, had got to a period of time where they lost their first love. Smyrna, a persecuted church, after the, after the early church period, and they were facing, facing persecution then, but it got really bad for the next several hundred years in the church. Many people were martyred because of their faith in Jesus during the Roman Empire. And then Pergamum, the compromising church, well, Constantine, in the third or fourth century AD, actually declared finally, through the blood of all those martyrs, there must be something to this Christianity. And he sent his mother on a journey to Jerusalem, and she found all kinds of facts that Jesus truly had lived and died, and, and it seemed he even had risen from the grave. And so Constantine declared that all of Roman Empire should worship this Jesus. And it became the state religion. Sounds really good on the surface, but what happened is the church began to compromise. And they began to form allegiances with Rome. And they began to make deals, and the popes became very corrupt. And there was all kinds of problems within the church structure. And they began to compromise the truth for convenience and for security. Thyatira, the corrupt church, there was much corruption that began to enter the church and we see that, don't we, through the Middle Ages, through the, the period of the Dark Ages. And then Sardis was a dead church. And we, we really see that as we, we come to the period of Martin Luther in the church in the Reformation some 500 years ago. The church was basically dying. It was dead. It wasn't doing what God intended it to do. And so God began to form a revival. And he began to say, let's get back to the, the things that were of first importance in the church. And eventually, we see the missional efforts of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, even into the 20th century, where many men and women left the convenience of what they knew to go and share the gospel around the world. And many people were saved through those efforts. 
They were a faithful church. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church, depicts the period right before Jesus' return, the final period of the church, where God gets kind of fed up with our lukewarm nature. We got one foot in this and one foot in, in Jesus. And God says, that's enough. I want, I want your full devotion, church. And he wants to spew them out of his mouth. That's how gross they are to him. Well, we only have four verses today, so it should go really quick, right? So join me in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, as we look at the message to the church in Smyrna. Verse 8. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life says, I know your affliction." And poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for ten days. Be faithful unto death, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. You know, this letter is pretty sobering, is it not? Doesn't sound very encouraging, right? You're going to get persecuted. You're going to get hammered for a period of time. You might even die. But stay strong, stay faithful, because you know the one to whom called you. To this life and redeemed you. And so it's a, it's a very interesting message because as a church living in the 21st century today, that live in a free land, America, that don't seem to encounter the persecutions that the church is around the world experiencing in many different places, but also for the history of the church has experienced at many times, it's like we can kind of listen to this message and go, that must not apply to me. But God has a message for his church, even us here at Crossroads today. And he wants those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, I want to recall for you what Jesus said about persecution in the Word of God in the Gospels. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus' words, and they say this, You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man, because of me. That's one of his titles, Jesus said. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. Anyone who was speaking or representing truth in that culture in that day, that's what the prophets were, right? They were men of God who were speaking and representing truth in their day. And how were they treated by the world around them? Not very well. Jesus is telling his church, what kind of expectations should we have? In the upper room, Jesus shared these words with his disciples. This was the night on which he would be betrayed, handed over, and eventually crucified the next day his last words with his disciples before the cross. And he said these words, John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They will keep yours, but they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Later on that night, he said these words in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Jesus wants his church to know that it's not going to be an easy road walking this path of following our Lord Jesus Christ in this world. Why? Because this world is hostile to truth. This world is hostile to the things of God. Yes, there are periods of time where it might seem like the world is more encouraging towards those things but that we have an enemy that's behind the system of this world. And that enemy certainly is never applauding truth. He's never one that will be excited about those who stand and represent the truth. The Apostle Paul goes on to to build on this thought in 2 Timothy 3.12, and he says these words, In fact, all, how many? All those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted, will be persecuted. It's a guarantee. It's a fact. It's an expectation that we should carry in this world. We know that as we live for Jesus in a hostile world to God and the truth, that persecution, hatred, and hardships will come. Trials will happen. Suffering will take place. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter agrees with this. Peter experienced this personally in his own life. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice, rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Verse 15, none of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. If you're suffering because of your own bad choices and trying to blame that on somehow like, look at me, I'm suffering because of Jesus' sake. What a farce. Peter's saying that isn't what's suffering. If if you're responsible for your own suffering, that's on you. Don't put that on Christ. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, if anyone suffers for representing the name of Jesus Christ, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. Verse 19, so those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you, do I have a biblical view of the life Jesus is calling us to live? Do we have a biblical view? 
Because many times we confuse the view that we have when we come to Jesus Christ. We think everything's going to be blessed. Everything's going to prosper. Everything's going to just become roses. But that's not what I just heard from the Lord Jesus Christ or his apostles. No, just quite the opposite. We should expect life on this world to get tougher as we follow Jesus in a hostile environment. And we should be prepared for that. Is your world view one of prosperity or persecution? I'm not up here to say you'll never have times of prosperity. I'm not up here to say that you'll never be blessed. Certainly you will. God lavishes blessings on his children. He delights in that. And certainly he allows some of us to prosper so that we can reinvest in the kingdom of God. But in general, around this world, as we follow Jesus, church, we need to be prepared for persecution. We need to be armed for suffering in our spirit and in our soul. Jesus' message to the seven churches kind of go this way. Seven different things here that these messages have in common. These seven churches are addressed with these seven things. Let's go through them real quick. First of all, John identifies the church to which he is writing. And there's an expectation that we know something about that church. Number two, there's a characteristic of Christ that is given. For the benefit of what's about to be said to that church, there's a characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ that is meant to encourage or to sober that church into understanding something that's true about their king. Number three, there's a commendation. There's usually something that's admirable about the church that John is addressing. Number four, there's always a rebuke that follows that, typically. There's a rebuke, something the church isn't doing right, right? So first they're celebrated, hey, you're doing this good, but you're not doing this well. And then number five, there's an exhortation. So how should you respond to this truth? How should you move forward? That's always included to each of these seven churches. And number six, there's then an appeal that it shouldn't just be to that audience, but it should be to all the churches, both then and now. Whoever has ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then finally, there's a promise for those who obey. There's a promise for obedience. Who's going to respond to these messages in the church and obey what God has to say? With that in mind, let's dive in. Verse 8, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. How did the church in Smyrna begin? Let me take you to Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Paul is in Ephesus, the first church that's addressed in Revelation, and he is ministering there for several years. And listen to what it says in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue, that's the place where the Jews gathered on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, to open the scriptures. And he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe, and then they publicly maligned the way. Now, the way is synonymous with those who believed in the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ. They maligned, in other words, they undermined and they ridiculed and they persecuted those who said Jesus was the Messiah. The fulfillment of God's salvation. So Paul left them. 
He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, this was a place where the Greeks, where the Gentiles, had a school. And they were educated there in all the Greek philosophy and all the different scientific methods of the day. And so during the break in school, Paul rented that hall and devoted time to teach not only the Jews who had left the synagogue, but also those who were Gentiles who heard about this Jesus and wanted to worship him as their Lord. He began to teach these folks. And this went on, verse 10, for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, by the way, all seven of these churches were in the province of Asia. It says here that all the Jews and the Greeks, Jews and Gentiles who lived there, heard the word of the Lord. Now, doubtless that Paul began the different churches. Not necessarily personally, but through his disciples. Through those who heard the word through him during this time in Ephesus. And they were from a place like Smyrna. And they say, there's no church in Smyrna. Paul's like, you can start one. Let me encourage you in that. Let me guide you in that. And the church was born in Smyrna. The name Smyrna simply means myrrh. You guys know the three gifts that were given to Jesus as a baby? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's the name of this city. It was an ordinary perfume. It was used for anointing oil in the tabernacle, but it was also used to embalm dead bodies. It was an embalming perfume so that the bodies wouldn't stink as much as they decayed. Jesus himself was embalmed with myrrh, you remember 75 pounds of expensive perfumes, including myrrh, were used to embalm the body of Jesus after he died on the cross. While the Christians of the church at Smyrna were experiencing the bitterness of suffering, their faithful testimony was like myrrh, or a sweet perfume to God. This was a city that was located 40 miles north of Ephesus. So 40 miles, but it was also a port city, and the Olympic Games were celebrated there in ancient times. Smyrna was given the honor of building a temple to one of the emperors in Rome because of its years of faithfulness to the Roman Empire. They were like one of the best provinces or cities in Rome. Thus, the city became the center for the cult that eventually arose of emperor worship. In other words, they would, they would worship the Caesars as God. And some of the Caesars demanded that of their people. It was a fanatical religion that later under emperors such as Nero and Domitian, it brought severe persecution for the early church. Why? Because the church wouldn't declare Caesar as God. They worshipped who is God? They worshipped Jesus and Jesus alone. First, he identifies the church. Then he provides a characteristic of who he is to the church. It's meant to be reassuring and comforting in the case the church is facing for those circumstances. The first and the last, what does that say about Jesus? He's in control. He was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's in control. You can trust me. I know what I'm doing. The one who was dead 
and came to life. What does that reassure a persecuted church? That even as they face the possibility of death, is that the end? No. Their Lord overcame death, and they as well can through faith. Next, he commends the church. The first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life says, I know your affliction and poverty. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, I relate with affliction. I relate with feeling poor, with not having anything. You know, the Son of Man said, I have no place to even lay my head. Do you remember that? Jesus, who was, had everything in heaven, left that. He left heaven to come to earth. And he went through nothing but poverty and suffering in his journey here on earth. The King of Kings emptied himself of every right that God held in heaven for our sake. You know, I love 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. There's the gospel right there. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, suffered and died to make us rich to exchange our rags and our filth with forgiveness and his perfect record of righteousness so that we could appear before God the Father viewed through God the Son as perfect, unblemished, and redeemed. Amen? That's what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews. Jews meaning the seed of Abraham, people of faith in God and in the promises he has, but they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan, wow, those are tough words, are they not? That means that the Jews of that day in the synagogue in Smyrna, they were nothing about God. They were everything about opposing the work of God. And he says, I know that that's what's going on in Smyrna. I'm aware. Normally, he would give a rebuke to the church next. But guess what? There's two churches that don't get any rebuke. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the faithful church. The one I talked about, the sixth church that's addressed. There's no rebuke. They're doing things right. Smyrna also, no rebuke. You know why I think? Because suffering purifies the church. Suffering really tells you who's the faithful one right? If you knew that it was going to cost you something to show up to church today, don't you think you would make a decision about how much you really wanted to follow Jesus before you showed up? If you knew that you could be locked up today for walking in these doors, would you have been here? Would you have come? It's easy to say, yep, but when we face the reality, it purifies those who are serious about following Jesus. That's, that's what was happening in Smyrna. Number five, there's an exhortation for the church. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. James chapter 1 verse 2 talks about this idea of facing 
affliction and persecution. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, this is why God allows it, the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test. Yes? Hello? Anyone home? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You know, this this idea of 10 days, the Bible is many different places, I don't have time to get into it, but addresses this idea of 10 days as being this, this period of time. Not necessarily 10 exact days, but just a, a period of time that will come to an end, but it could go on for a, quite a while. It's an indefinite period of time that only God knows that we have to go through a season of suffering. You know, it could even refer to the ten emperors of Rome until Constantine. Remember I told you him making the Christianity the state religion? You couldn't persecute Christians anymore? But up until Constantine, there was like 300 years, and ten specific emperors of Rome were heavy on persecuting followers of Jesus. Maybe it's a being addressed there. So why does suffering happen to those who are godly? What's God's purpose in it? This, this sermon isn't meant to cover it exhaustively, but let me suggest four reasons why God allows suffering and persecution in his church. Number one, discipline. Sometimes we need to go through trials so that we become disciplined in our faith. Number two, preventive for becoming too overly independent and moving away from our dependence on God. You know, this was Paul with the thorn in the flesh. Do you remember he had a thorn in the flesh? He experienced persecution and suffering, and he asked three times that God remove it, and God said, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect through your weakness. And so he left it as a suffering in Paul's side. And number three, the learning of obedience Christ suffered. Why would Christ have to suffer? He's the ultimate righteous man. Christ suffered, and the Bible says he learned obedience through suffering. Wow. If Jesus had to do that, what do you think we need to go through? And finally, for providing a better testimony for Christ. You know, the church has many times exploded after periods of intense persecution. Around the world today, that the fastest growing areas of the church are not in the United States of America. They're in places where it is completely hostile to believe in Jesus Christ. And yet, through the suffering of those who are being martyred and mistreated for their faith, the church is growing like wildfire. God allows suffering because he knows that it can save more souls. Amen? Amen. There was a bishop named Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna, and he personally was put in that place by John, the Apostle John who wrote Revelation, ordained as a bishop, a leader in Smyrna, a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was considered one of the three chief apostolic fathers after the 12 apostles had passed away. So we're talking the first century, 
into the second century. Polycarp's regarded as one of the chief apostolic fathers along with Clement in Rome and Ignatius in Antioch. Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna. There's a martyrdom that was written of Polycarp that when he was 86 years old, he was asked to renounce his faith in Jesus and pledge his allegiance to the Caesar of that day as God. And he declined. He declined. And this is his words as recorded in the martyrdom of Polycarp. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire. He was being threatened to be burned at the stake. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a, while, a little while it would be quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. He was burned at the stake. He was pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. On his farewell, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I can share in the cup of Christ. I can share in the cup of Christ. Number six, we see that anyone who has ears should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. God wants us to understand that this message is not just for the church that existed in Smyrna in the first century. No, it's even intended for us at Crossroads in the 21st century. We are to apply these truths into our life. We are to understand and prepare ourselves for the persecution that we will experience as we represent Jesus Christ, and we shouldn't shy away from it because it might cost us something. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. In the last part of Revelation, it talks about the second death. It, it explains what the second death is in Revelation chapter 20. But I'm out of time this morning, so I'm not going to read all of the passages that I had prepared at the end because we do have a whole other set of things coming up today. We have our annual meeting coming up, and we want to welcome you to stay. If you'd like to stay, we're still going to try and get out on time at 12 o'clock. But before I close, I do want to say this. The second death is the death where he takes anybody whose name is not written in the book of life and he throws them into everlasting fire to pay for their sins. He says the victor will never be harmed by the second death. What does he mean? He means those who receive their victory because of the faith they have in the ultimate victor, Jesus Christ. They will never have to face the second death. Yes, we all face one death, don't we? Death is inevitable. Except for the rapture, except for Jesus taking away his church, even in that rapture, we are transformed. We don't go like this. We're given new bodies. There's a moment of transformation, even in the rapture. But death is ultimately a transformation from this state into an eternal state. And God says that you can have assurance of salvation. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says this. And this is the record. John wrote these words. The apostle we're looking at in Revelation. This is the record, or this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Let it be that you know that you're not going to face the second death. Be someone that says, Jesus, be my Savior. I surrender my life to you. And I surrender it not because you promised me prosperity, but because you are the only one that holds the key to life. And I want to have true life. And that begins with you. This morning, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And we're going to respond with a couple of songs. We're going to have people at the prayer tables in the back. And I want to encourage you that if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, today can be a day where you say, God, I want to be considered part of your family, your forever family. I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus. I don't want to face the second death. I may have to face the first death, and choosing Jesus may lead me to that moment. But I consider it my privilege to suffer along with Christ, as did Polycarp. But I want to be victorious when it comes to the second death. If you've never done that, we have these awesome prayer members around the room. Jim's in the back. I see Dennis back there. I see Peggy in the back and others, Wayne and Maluli. They would love to pray with you. They would love to explain if you have questions or you just want to know, what does that really mean? How do I do that? How can I be assured? They would love to do that. And as we respond in worship, let that be something that you consider doing. Or you have any other issues, go pray with them today.